Church is a people, it's not a place. And it's a, it's a particular kind of people. And we've been talking about that the last several weeks here at, uh, at Southside. And I hope we don't stop talking about that and uh, understanding our identity as the church through the framework of being a people. The global church is the people of God who identify with Christ as the king and live as citizens of his kingdom. And that is a global family. So the capital C church is that. Uh, their primary mandate, call, and responsibility is to reign and rule as representatives of God on earth. To be and become God's loving presence on earth as it is in heaven. That has always been the responsibility of the people of God globally. That was the vocation of Israel. That is the vocation of the church and the calling of the church which is why it says that we talk about being with Jesus to become like Jesus in order to do what Jesus would do in and through us here in Milton as he would in heaven. And then the local church, the local church is the gathered people of God, the ecclesia. It is the assembly of the people to be with Jesus together. And that's what we're doing. If you came to church this morning, you came to the local gathering, the local assembly, one of many in Milton, of, uh, of, of saints, of people who identify with Jesus, follow Jesus, are pursuing the ways of Jesus, want to live in Jesus' kingdom and see Jesus as the king. And whether or not that um, applies to you, you could be someone who's here who's checking that out or trying to understand what that means, or you may be somebody who is here just with a friend, um, and I just want to let you know that, that that's at least the, the primary um, identity of this group of people and purpose for gathering is, uh, is to ultimately be the local expression of the people of God and to be together uh, in that. So spending time together on Sunday mornings, we are uh, spending time with Jesus amongst us. And the things that we do on a Sunday morning, we pray, we worship, we serve one another with love and good deeds, we serve kids and do kids programming, we study all that Jesus has commanded us, and we teach it. Uh, oftentimes, it's a one-way transaction on Sunday morning, but the purpose for that to come a conversation. Uh, we teach uh, kids and adults to obey all the things that Jesus has commanded us to obey. We keep one another accountable in obedience to Christ. We share the good news of God's kingdom with the world around us, with one another, because I need a reminder weekly of that good news and why it's good. And we uh, share it with others who don't even know that yet. We provide food for the hungry, we care for the poor, we meet practical needs, both in our giving, but also in our service uh, all week long in many different ways, and hopefully more in the future. And so that's who the church is, and we are that. You are that. If you, not if you're here this morning, if you are here this morning and, you, and you've have, uh, made a decision that I'm actually going to follow Jesus with my life, then you are that. And that's a lot of the things that we get up to. Today I want to focus briefly on another um, common motif for the church in the New Testament. And that is the family motif. The church isn't just a gathered people. The church is a family. It's not just a gathered people. It is a family. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to his disciples as brothers and sisters which in the first century, that was actually the most bold familial claim. Your brother and sister relationship were actually closer than your 
mother-father relationship to you and your child relationship to you. The, the, um, the closeness of a brother and sister was seen to be the primary family relationship. And so it's not lesser than. Sometimes in the West, we think of it as lesser than some of the other relationships, parent-to-child relationship, but it was, uh, it was primary. In Romans 12, we see um, the Apostle Paul, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So the Apostle Paul is telling those who are reading this letter, which is the church in Rome, what they ought to do and how they ought to live. In Acts 2, we get an example of what this looks like. And many of you guys are familiar with this. We've quoted it many times here at Southside before. In Acts chapter 2, when those uh, gathered, uh, started following Jesus, this is what their life looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread, eating meals together, and praying together. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through them. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, adding to the temple together, the body, the gathering together, they broke bread in their homes, ate meals together, like what uh, AK and Blessing were talking about. The first century church, the, the, the early church is what they did. They ate together. And they received food with glad and generous hearts. And there's more to say there, but that's just an example of what it looked like. In Ephesians 2, it says, so, um, it's, uh, this is the Apostle Paul again, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Again, you get that household language, a familial language. He goes on to say, it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone of that household in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple. We talked about that a little bit earlier, about the body is actually replaces the actual physical temple, and that Christ is the foundation, the cornerstone of this body, but this is the temple. This is where God dwells, and Christ is the cornerstone of that. It grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit, and the dwelling place is literally a family. That's all through that. So there's no question in the New Testament particularly, but this comes all the way through the Old Testament. The family of God, Israel, where God's people, his family, started with a family, has always been familiar. There's no question that from Old to New Testament that disciples of Jesus, the church, and the vision that Jesus had for his church was to be a family and was to be a household, was to function like, exist as, and in, in a very real way, be a family and a household. The question is, do you and I believe that? That's more of the question. There's no question about whether or not that was the intention. The question is, do you and I actually believe that? And that's where we have to start asking ourselves a question, or at least those who would say we follow Jesus and we're part of the family of God. I want to give you a thought on belief. This has been really important to me recently, and I hope you understand where I'm, where I'm going with this and when I say this. A friend of me asked not too long ago about what I believe about a few things. And nowadays, I find that to be a difficult question to answer. It's not because I don't have a million thoughts. If you know me, I have a million opinions on a million things, right? You're laughing because it's true. I've always been that way. Um, it's not a matter of not having opinions and thoughts and ideas on some things, on what I may believe or I, may, I think are better to believe than other things. That has nothing to do with it. And it's not a lack of confidence in those ideas that I hold. I, I have a lot of confidence in those things uh, if I've done the work to have confidence in them. 
So it's not a matter of confidence. I hope that my ideas are rooted and backed by data and research and a proper use of my rational faculties. That's my hope and desire, and I'm doing the best I can to hold ideas in my head that are backed by data and are rational. The reason I find the question difficult to answer is because a number of um, really important uh, intellectual influences in my life have led me to believe that belief is less of an idea that I hold in my head and more uh, a way that I live with my body. Belief isn't as much of a cognitive function as a lived experience. From their perspective and opinion, and I agree with that, and I would suggest the New Testament also nudges us in that direction. James particularly does that. Uh, We've all been burned many times by people who claim to believe something, but they don't live as though it's true. If you've grown up in the church, you've been, I mean, this, this is just the norm. Hypocrisy is, is a part of all of our experiences. At least in the church, we're courageous enough to say what we think we believe, right? In the world we're living in today, it's like, I'm not even sure we're courageous enough to stake a claim on anything, which is its own unfortunate reality. I'm comfortable being a courageous hypocrite. I'm comfortable being that. I think we all need to be more courageous in our hypocrisy. That doesn't mean live into it more. It just means turn and face it and realize, hey, we say we believe things, but we don't back it up sometimes with our actions. And that should humble us. It shouldn't produce pride in us. It should humble us, right? And so I'm comfortable believing that and actually living into that. And I'm comfortable around people who are courageous in their hypocrisy, not arrogant and confident in it, just courageous enough to turn to it and face it. But I've grown weary of stating a belief that sounds like a right thing to say if there's no evidence in my life that I live in accordance with that. For to me today, belief is to live as though something is true. And I want you to hear that this morning when I say, do you believe that the family, that the church is a family? To believe is to actually live as though something is true. I've gotten this phrase from Canadian psychologist uh, Jordan Peterson, but also from a missiologist and a church planter named Jeff Vanderstelt in a book called Gospel Fluency. He talks about how um, if our actions don't align with our beliefs, then we actually, it's not that we don't believe those things that we're saying, we actually just believe something else more. And so to say, hey, I believe this, but I act in a different way, isn't to say you don't necessarily believe that. It just means that you probably believe something else more. If you say, I shouldn't do this, but you still go ahead and do it, you actually, somewhere in there, there is a belief that doing it is going to produce something that matters more than not doing it, like you said you probably shouldn't, right? Does that make sense? So to believe is to live as though something is true, and you can tell what someone believes by how they live their life. You actually tell what they truly believe by how they live their life. And you can tell what you truly believe by how you live your life. Stating a set of ideas and saying I'm adherent to those ideas may have nothing to do with what you actually believe. Because we've seen plenty of people stick a claim about something but not live it. What do you actually believe? What do you live like? Do we live as though this is true? Um, Jesus testifies to this as well. You see in John 13, 35. It's interesting what he says to his disciples. He says, um, Everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. Everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. I.e., my disciples love one another. They don't just say I'm the disciple. They don't just say all the right things. They don't just set all this, like, this, these, these, uh, these ideas and say, this is what I think, this is what I am, this is who I am. Jesus says your identity will be known by actually your love, by living it out. 
And so to believe something is to live as though something is true. And if we are followers of Jesus, we are disciples of Jesus, we live as though that's true. And if we believe that the church is a family of God, we live as though that's true. So the question for us, the gut check question, at least this morning, is do we live as though the church is family? And like I've said, I've already given you the out. If you're not sure about the whole Jesus thing, this expectation is not on you at all. You're still figuring that out. And there's a set of ideas that you probably have to come to discover and learn, like the church being family and what it means to follow Jesus before you can say, I'm in for that. So there's space for that. But if you are aware, you have the background, you have the history, you have the experience to know what is true, then the question is, do you actually believe it? Would people look at our lives and question whether or not we are family? In some cases, they would probably say, are you guys related in some kind of way? You hang out a lot. You eat together every week. What's up with that? That's the kind of thing a family does. But then in other ways, they would probably be like, hmm, you guys don't really even know each other, let alone like each other. Would people look at our lives and question whether we're family? One of the areas of focus in the season for this particular church at Southside has been bringing order to the family that God is forming here. The staff and the elders at Southside, we've been spending a lot of time working on systems and structures that can continue to bring order to gatherings, order to disciple-making efforts, order to ministries, order to leadership development. I believe this is essential kingdom work. I believe it is necessary and essential it always sounds too organizational for us organic types, and trust me, I like the organic type stuff, but the truth is I think this is as essential to kingdom work as, as, as many other things. There's a bit of a sour taste in some people's mouths regarding the church as an organization and utilizing organizational wisdom and tools to properly and effectively organize people, and I get that. Uh, there's been a lot of fallout recently and uh, a lot of giants who have fallen from grace, especially in my formative years. I mean, I've lived through that last decade seeing the giants fall, and if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But I remain confident that there is a call to bring more order to the household that is the church. With the uh, annual general meeting coming up, if you didn't notice, there's a sign there, those are the list of members. If you're part of this church, you're a member, you're on that list, and there's also, is, I don't know, is the, is the nomination up there? So the person we are putting forward to be nominated as an elder is up there. All members can go view, everybody can go view that but that's present and in front of you. We have our annual general meeting in two weeks where we make decisions as a body, as a family, on who's going to lead us and what decisions we're going to make financially. So just note that in two weeks from now after the service. But check out these characteristics, characteristics of an elder. I'm going to read uh, pieces of 1 Timothy 3. I just want you to hear this and see this. This is the um, New Testament characteristics of the type of person that should lead the church that should oversee, that should govern the family of God, that we should look to as the example to follow as they follow Christ. This is the list of examples of what that person ought to look like. It says, here is a trustworthy saying, whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his spouse, wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family, 
in quotes, it's in, in a bracket that says, if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect and see to it that his children obey him. And then it says about deacons, which is a leadership position, a ministry position. It says they must, must be able to manage their children and their household well. There's a lot more in that list. But it's interesting to see that the, uh, one of the primary criteria of a leader of the church is someone who knows how to manage and lead a household well. And in our text, it literally says, if they can't do that, they can't lead the church, the body, the household, the family. So we're looking for the kinds of people who can lead a family and who are leading a family well to lead us as a family well. To manage here is to lead. This uh, similar word. Sometimes we differentiate them between like managing and like vision. Leadership is vision stuff. Management is just task stuff, but they're used kind of interchangeably. But the idea here, at least from I, as far as I can understand it, is the idea is to lead um, a, a thing or a people from a place of disorder to orderliness. It's kind of the goal of a manager is to maintain order, and a leader is to produce order so that we can actually get somewhere. Uh, the idea there is to influence people in the direction, in a, in a, in a, in a common direction, or somebody in a good direction. And to manage is to maintain cohesion so that we can properly get to whatever that destination is. An example of a good leader here in 1 Timothy is a good father or a good mother. That's the example that we see. Let's talk about that for a second, because I think that's important. I had a dear pastor friend of mine, he's older than I am, and we had uh, a coffee the other day. And recently, he told me that he covets the relationship I have with my father because he doesn't have something like that. I never did. I take for granted a lot the father that I have, the father that I still have. But you can trace a lot of my life and the good things in my life to having a father like what I have. And I don't necessarily see it because I swim in the waters of it. But he has a pastor who's been shepherding people for decades and loves Jesus and leads people and spiritually fathers. People was saying to me, like, he craves that kind of relationship. He's never really had it. And it struck me. I ought to thank God for parents like mine. Because the more time I spend with people, the more rare that actually is. And I don't say that as a boast. I've done nothing to deserve that. Nothing. It's not been something I've willed. It's been the grace of God in my life through good parents and a great father. We will see a change in the next generation to the extent that we commit to spiritually mothering and fathering the next generation. How they do will be a direct, um, there will be a direct correlation between how we mother and father them to how they do. The next generation is not lost. The next generation and generations to come are not wayward. They need spiritual mothers and fathers who are going to shepherd them and are going to bring order to a household that they can live in and thrive in and grow up in and function healthily in and learn from. 
in this weird season that the church is going through, which it is, I talked to some amazing people who have led many churches and been a part of many churches, and there's a lot of like hurt and pain, and I get all that. Like I said, I've been a part of that. But there's this weird season where we distrust just the idea of leadership altogether. And like I said, I get that, but I want to state clearly and emphatically, at least for me, we need, we do not need more disciples of Jesus shying away from leadership. We don't need more of you who've been following Jesus for a long time, who've been grown in Christ, who are healthy in Christ, or at least have some consistent rhythms and practices of spending time with Jesus where you're becoming more pervaded by love daily. We don't need you shying away from leadership. We need you confidently stepping into positions and roles and opportunities of leadership. But the parental type of leadership, we're not talking about football coach style, although that's helpful once in a while. We're not talking about the drill sergeant style that some of us grew up with. It's helpful once in a while. We're talking about Leading like a father who's permeated by love. That's what we're talking about. And this next generation is reliant on you and I to step into roles and responsibilities as leaders to lead. It's essential. We need to stop standing idle. We need to stop doubting Christ in us, always. Or at least assuming that that's the standard. We need to Stop getting busy with meaningless work, and we need to start getting busy with meaningful work of mothering and fathering a generation. You're not being asked to take this on your own. You're not being asked to take over the world. We do this together. But my goodness, we don't need more and more people shying away from the responsibility and the call to pastor and to shepherd and to care, and to father, and to mother, because we all need it, no matter what age we are, and the next generation coming after us desperately needs it. I would love it if every disciple in this room, person who follows Jesus actively and makes it a priority in their life, looked at that list of criteria for an elder and said, that's what I'm aiming at. I want to become that. It's not for the few It's not for the select few. It's not for everyone else. It's for you. If you're serious about growing in Christ and being formed by Christ, the formation of Christ in you will produce that kind of person, presumably. I mean, they're good things, right? And we should look at that, humbly saying we're not there yet. Because I look at that and I go, oh, I'm not there yet. But I know what I'm aiming at. I know what I'm striving towards. And my hope is that this church is a church filled with the kind of people from whatever age are looking at that and going, yeah, I'm aiming at that. I hope Christ forms me into that because I have a role and responsibility to pastor and shepherd and father and mother this generation and the generation to come. And we do this for the sake of the world, for the sake of the city, and for the sake of the kids coming up after us. So the church is a family and all families, good families, the best families, the healthiest families, have a mother and a father and a good mix of mothering and fathering. And that's not to say that if your life didn't have that growing up, that you're beyond redemption. That's why the church is there, to be that for you and with you for the sake of raising the next generation. From last week in Rachel's prayer this week, um, we have different roles to play in that process. 
We are all called to strive towards um, the responsibility of bringing order to our households and to the body and to the family and the church, but it looks different for everybody. We all have different spiritual gifts, all different talents, all different capacities. None of them necessarily more important than the other. But when we all contribute, we contribute to taking the chaos of an amazing group of people like this and bringing some order to it for the purpose of serving and fathering and mothering the next um, generation. So the invitation to volunteer and the training for such is a step in the direction of contributing to the orderliness of this house. Um, I said in the email, and Denny even said, like, this morning is about telling you the why to the what that Denny's going to do this afternoon. Um, I'm going to watch your kids this afternoon, by the way. Anyone who's leaving kids, I have nothing to do with the volunteer training. I haven't planned it. I'm not executing it. I'm going to watch your kids. My wife and I are going to serve you and your kids so that you can do that because that really does matter to us, and we are in this in the same way that you are. So the invitation is to find your role and your place in bringing order to this household and caring for it well. I want to remind you that leadership is to pour out the love of the Father after first being pervaded by love in the direction of the influence that we have around us. It is to become God's presence in that sphere of influence, which is to reign and rule as representatives of God and his kingdom. And we do this here in this church. There's many different ministries and gatherings. And we also talk about everywhere we walk and talk and everywhere we live and have influence in public, in the workplace, in our kids' schools. We are to represent Christ in those places and see those as a sphere of influence. We're called to bring the, loving, the love of the Father to and we do this with relational acts as well as organizational tasks. I just want to give you an example this morning. Pastor Ian said um, something about, I'm setting up chairs. And I've been setting up chairs the last few months. Um, and I, I actually enjoy it. Uh, it's work, but I enjoy it for a couple reasons. One is, you know, it's just task work. It's kind of mindless. It's actually not mindless. It's very meticulous, um, which is the comment that Ian made. Uh, I spent a year at, at school in Australia at a church. I paid them to set up chairs for them and learn how to set up chairs for them. It's amazing, um, the deal. We've got to work out a deal like that. Elders will talk about that this afternoon. How do we get students to pay for your leadership training where they spend the whole year just learning how to set up chairs and be so meticulous about it? That was, um, but the reality is, like, setting up the chairs in the particular way, nobody would really see it. It's anti-relational. It's not relational by nature. But, and you may not even notice, but uh, we're trying to fit as many chairs in here at the same time as create as many pathways for you to walk down. And as someone who's 6'4", 300 pounds, I understand what it's like to sit in a chair and not have any leg room in front of me. It's really annoying. And so we're meticulous about the spacing because it's hospitable. And we're meticulous about the spacing so that you can walk amongst and connect and gather because that's hospitable. Something as small and simple as the way in which we set up chairs on a Sunday morning is hospitality and is bringing order. If we came in and we said, teenagers, throw the chairs out, no offense, guys, but um, the space would be extremely chaotic on a Sunday. You'd walk in and you'd feel disjointed and confused. You wouldn't know where to go and, and you'd be moving things around and it would be really awkward and weird. And the idea of bringing order to the space it actually facilitates 
more people having a seat, and it facilitates a more comfortable environment to worship and to listen and to hear and to gather and to connect. Something as simple as how we set up chairs in a space is as important as prepping something to say and talking for 25 minutes. Uh, and to someone else here, I won't name her by name, but we were serving the community closet a few weeks ago. And at the community closet, we have a free clothing store here that's open every Saturday, and we have, it's a team of volunteers who runs it. And uh, my first day serving there, I'm like, how many people can I talk to? And so I'm just like talking to people. I'm spending a half hour in conversation with people. I'm loving that. I'm not thinking about the racks of clothes that are just turning to utter chaos, right? People, right? I'm the guy at the store. I'm sorry if you're a retail employee. I'm the guy who like picks it up and goes, nope, and I just drop it. I don't fold it. There's no point. You're going to refold it anyway because my folding sucks. So, it's, so that's me, right? Well, people are here doing that. And we're talking to someone.